What is it? The truth of Siwon. Yeah, it is. Will you tell me a story? Please? You can tell me one from like the family or whatever, or from when you were little. So I grew up next to this church called Barewall Baptist. It was our only neighbor too, the rest was just country. When I was 15, my brother's friend spray painted an upside down cross on her shed. And no one from the church ever talked to us and my parents never covered the cross up or anything. I mean, it wasn't really obvious. It was graffiti, but it had our last name written down the center of it. I was so ashamed, but I wasn't home very often, and I never covered it up either. It never even crossed my mind to. So now it's been there for about six years, and my dad's the only one that still lives in that house. One day, he gets this package, but he's terrible about checking his mail. He only does it like once a month on the last weekend right before taxes are due. So this box has been sitting there on his porch for a while when my brother comes back to visit with a bunch of his friends. They were hoping to go on a hike behind the house. By the time they pull into the driveway, it's pouring. My dad's away at work, but they know he won't mind if they go in. They get comfortable, start drinking a few beers. It's cold out, so they start a fire. And when they're getting wood off the porch, they notice this package. My brother opens it, and it's this black book with a pink star, and in a little white font on the front, it says, The Satanic Bible. So by now it's dark, and they are really spooked when my dad comes in, all happy to see that they came to visit. But they're all somber and big-eyed, and they show him the book, and he gets really creeped out too. He pulls out his cigarettes, and he didn't say this, but I'm sure they all follow suit, and then gather in the living room. My dad refuses to read from it. My brother looks in it and says that it's real dark shit. They decide they should burn it in the fireplace. It's a hardcover and pretty slow to catch light. My dad starts with just the corner. He swings it back and forth, adding more smoke to the living room so it gets dramatic. And they just sit like that until the whole book is gone, just ashes. My dad says, enough of that, and everybody falls asleep. They go back to town the next day, and my dad forgets about the whole thing until the next month, his friend came out to visit. Love you guys. Love you. Oh, yeah, you better call me soon. I gotta talk to you about things. Stuff. He's like, hey, look, you got a package. And what do you know? Same damn book. But this time, my dad checks the packaging and sees that instead of his own name, it's addressed to this guy, Jonathan Sinclair, which his friend recognizes. He says that he's an Episcopalian preacher that lives in Batcave, which is a town right nearby us. When my dad tells me that, I'm like, geez, of all places, Batcave? But he doesn't hear me. He's too excited about telling me the story. They look up the author of the book, too, which he tells me is this really creepy-looking guy named LeVay. Very sinister. My dad and his friends sit there and try to figure out what the heck is going on. 
and they think about going up to visit John Sinclair, or maybe just going to his church and getting a good look at him. They figure the guy mailed it to our address on accident, or was planning on picking it up in the night or something. My dad's all convinced that this guy is a closeted sorcerer. In the end, he decides that it's a trap, and nothing good could come out of pursuing it, so he burns the book again and just stops thinking about it. He hasn't gotten any packages since. After he tells me this whole thing, I think of the upside-down cross on our shed, and I bring up how it's directly facing Bearwall Baptist. My dad had forgotten about it, and now he gets all hyped up and starts saying that the book was probably connected to someone that goes to that church next door, trying to teach him a lesson. He says he always knew something was up about the place. He gets into this whole story about how when we first moved to North Carolina and we were still Christian, my mom thought the church was really cute. I mean, it is. So even though it was obviously real conservative, they decided to check it out and bring me my brother too. It was nice inside, red velvet pews, but I don't remember this at all. The preachers started talking about the part in Revelations where seven angels pour seven bowls filled with God's wrath onto the earth. This was no good because when I was little, I was terrified that the end of the world was going to happen at any moment. So I started crying and my mom had to take me out. My dad and my brother stayed through the whole sermon though. And at the very end, the preacher brought up this article about a group of cosmonauts that while orbiting the Earth, reported seeing seven giant angels surrounded by a bright orange light, chasing them behind their spacecraft. They're out there. They're waiting. But I don't think the book... I don't think the book was a warning for my dad to behave. I think it was a gift. It makes sense, especially after I look up the author of Satan's Bible, Anton LaVey. He never wears color. He's wiry and completely bald. With tiny brown eyes and sunken cheeks. And a little goatee. What you just heard was Angels from Space by art student Sage Hopkins. Up next is some audio I recorded at the annual Peter Cooper block party. I was at a table that was half Cooper Radio and half design company my friends and I are trying to start, which turned out to be unexpectedly controversial. In the context of branding and environmental design? Yeah! (laughs) Alex and Richard are Kulaks. One day they will be Gulagged and we will expropriate all their wealth. Thank you. Those are some good posters. Thanks, Charlie. How does it work? This? Uh huh. It's called a microphone. You know that? Uh-huh. All right. Well, when you speak, right, it's like, you know how you can feel your voice? Do you know that? Like, it, it's vibrating. It's like shaking. The microphone can feel your voice also. And it, like, writes down how it shakes. And then it can play back your voice. Does that make sense? 
But Mike loves to talk to a microphone. It's supposed to be loud. Well, yeah, if there's a speaker on the other end of the microphone. But in this case, we just have a recorder on the other end so we can play it back later. So we'll play it back louder later. Just not right now. We want to now. <laughs> The person you heard carefully explaining how microphones work to a small child uh, is engineering adjunct professor Christopher Currow. I've never heard uh, an explanation as good and intuitive as that. Earlier in the day, he was lecturing my table about the concept of color spaces. Um, I never knew that much about color spaces, except that they were a thing you could change in Photoshop to make your photos more colorful and saturated. Seriously, if you're struggling with like a photo of a desert landscape and it just looks dull and, and bad, switch to lab color space and just play around with the curves on the, the, the AB thing. Play around with the AB curves and it will be really awesome. I guarantee it. Anyway. This is Christopher Curro on Color Spaces. All right. Hopefully someone else's problem. Uh, yes, that's right. What Daniel Gitzel just said, hopefully somebody else's problem. Uh, but the gist of it, right, is that a color space is a particular type of, you know, what we might call object that helps us define how to represent colors in a convenient way. This tends to be in a, you know, a mathematical way where we represent colors with, you know, some sets of numbers, whatever. Okay. Now, sort of the two common color spaces are RGB and CMYK. All right. RGB being, being red, green, blue, and that's a color space where you add red, green, and blue together to make white, okay? And an absence of those colors makes black. The CMYK-based color space, cyan, yellow, magenta, black, K being black, you don't want to repeat B for blue. And in that kind of space, when you add colors together, you get black. And the absence of any color would be white. So you can imagine RGB is useful in an illumination type scenario, say a computer monitor, where CMYK-based spaces are useful for printing scenarios, where you put ink on a page. So this, this is where it actually kind of gets weird. Now, we could talk about RGB, we could talk about CMYK and the chromaticity diagram. But that's actually kind of boring. Uh, instead, we want to talk about the XYZ color space, or the lab color space. Okay, uh, L star, A star, B star. Okay, now RGB and CMYK, while they are useful for physical representations of color, they're actually uh, rather poor when we start to talk about human perception, because RGB and uh, CMYK aren't what we call perceptually uniform. Uh, so that means is if you add a particular amount of a color to an RGB color, or you add a particular amount of a color to a CMYK color, right? that difference doesn't correspond to an equivalent amount of change on another color. In a lab color space, it's designed such that a delta change causes a uniform change in perception to the human eye. Now this required a lot of experimentation, in particular in the 1930s, uh, which is where we first got the XYZ color space, and then that was later developed by uh, CIE, a French organization for color standards, uh, to make the lab color space. 
which is this perceptual uniform space where the three dimensions, L, A, and B, each correspond to sort of uh, orthogonal concepts with color. That is, they don't precisely interfere with each other. So we have L, which is the luminance channel, and then we have A and B, which the A and the B don't stand for anything like the L. They're just the first two letters in the alphabet. And they're each chrominance colors, all right? Uh, chrominance channels, sorry. So the lab color space is actually this weird sort of uh, three-dimensional horseshoe that kind of, it's, you know, it's like, um, like a sort of a rounded pyramid or cone type of thing. It's a little strange. And the boundaries of this color space don't actually correspond to the limits of human perception. There's actually colors within the lab space and with the RGB space that are not perceivable to humans. There's also ones that aren't physically representable as well. That's another one of the tricks. So, uh, so, so I, uh, I work in the fashion industry, uh, working on like personalization and computer vision algorithms to help understand like what makes a person interested in a particular type of garment, uh, things like that. And so, you know, I have an interest in being able to look at a particular garment and extracting what the colors of interest in are in it, making a color palette. And you have to do things in there that make it uh, sort of uh, robust to the illuminance or, you know, or how it's illuminated, you know, how it's lit, uh, how it's photographed, things like that. Um, you know, just because one color, one piece of a fabric is in a shadow and the other one isn't, doesn't mean they're different colors. You have to try and pick up on that and sort of recognize when, you know, uh, ordinary perception would sort of let you down, right? The math is a lot weaker than, you know, the human's visual system is. So you sort of have to try to, um, you know, compensate for that. Uh, and it's just... Up next is Kelsey Mitchell, recalling a fairy tale that she's reading for a humanities class. So recently I was uh, reading a book of fairy tales and came across a story called Hans My Hedgehog. And this is my best uh, kind of recap of what happened in the story. Once upon a time, there was a very rich farmer and his wife. They had everything they could ever wish for, except that they could not have children. One day, <laughs> The farmer exclaimed, Ah, oh, if only I could have a child, I would even have a hedgehog. <laughs> Conveniently, his wish was granted and his wife became pregnant. Nine months later, out popped a half hedgehog, half human boy. Unfortunately for him, his top half was hedgehog and his bottom half was human. And it wasn't like that thing where, like, you know, if he sliced him vertically, it was like. <laughs> human on the front, hedgehog on the back. So as the years went by, he became quite an outcast in his house and his dad made him sleep behind the pantry, behind the oven at night because he couldn't sleep in a human bed because his bristles would break the whole bed up. Years and years pass and he finally reaches at like adult adolescence, whatever. And he says, dad, you're going to the town fair today. Can you please just pick me up a bag of bagpipes? <laughs> and the dad says, sure, whatever, I don't care. He comes back with the bagpipes, and the son, the hedgehog's son says, all right, dad, that's it. I'm, uh, I I'm leaving now. And the dad was not sad to see him go. Actual quote from the story. 
So the hedgehog boy uh, takes off on a rooster. The rooster actually flies him to a nearby forest, and they live in a tree. So uh, Hans the hedgehog sits on top of the rooster and plays bagpipes during the day. One day, a king and his courtly uh, group are walking by, and they're like, man, we're really lost. How do we get out of this forest? Oh, wait, what's that beautiful bagpipe music being played? Hans the hedgehog takes this opportunity to make a deal with the king. He says... I will take, I will tell you how to get out of this forest if you promise me that when we reach your kingdom, I get the first thing that walks, that I see when I walk through the door. And the king's like, this guy can't read or write. <laughs> That's fine, I can trick him. They get to the castle door, and conveniently, the king's uh, newly also uh, adult adolescent, ready for marriage daughter, <laughs> is walking through. And, and Hans is like, yes, now's my chance. I get to marry this girl. And uh, the king's like, no, 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 no. We can work something out. So he kicks Hans out. And Hans goes back to the tree, sitting on top of the rooster, playing the bagpipes. A couple months later, another king walks by and says, hey, how do I get out of here? And Hans the hedgehog is like, perfect, my second option. Does the same thing with this king. And also, the first thing that Hans sees is another princess. So he's like, hey, look, I'm calling you on your bluff, man. You promised me this princess. And he's like, no, 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 get out. So Hans is so pissed off at this point that he goes back to the first kingdom and says, knock, knock, I'm here for my princess. And he forces him uh, to give him the princess against his will. So, you know, it's a wedding night and, <laughs> you know, Hans is looking to have a nice time because, you know, his bottom half is human. <laughs> And before they get married, he's like, hey, I want you to, like, visit me in my room really quick. So the bride-to-be walks in. Hans turns around, stabs the princess with all of his bristles, and permanently maims the princess. And he says, you know what? I didn't want you anyway. This is what you get for being very, like, uh, not liking me and only judging by appearances. So he bounces up out of that castle, goes to the next castle that claims his revenge. And the daughter's like, yeah, all right, whatever. I'll marry you. It's fine. It's the wedding night again. And this time, he's like, all right, all right, all right, all right. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And uh, he orders a couple of squires to come in and put on the fire in the bedroom. <laughs> and just as about he's about to get into bed, he zips off his hedgehog costume. Turns out he was wearing it. He could have removed it the whole time. Yes. He has the squires grab it before he could put it back on, throw it in the fire, but as it burns, also does his human skin. <laughs> so his whole skin turns black, and then the, the, the hedgehog costume is destroyed. And then there's this whole thing where they're like, yeah, and all of the, you know, the medical people in the kingdom, like, applied ointments, and eventually he turned into a full-fledged human. So after all this, a couple weeks go by, he decides to take his new bride, who happens to be the princess of a giant-ass kingdom, brings it back to his dad, goes back to his family home and says, yeah, dad, look what I did. <laughs> I'm a king now. And then bounces up out of there. And that's the story of Hans, my hedgehog. <laughs> my favorite part personally is when he turns around and starts stabbing his bristles. <laughs> so who are you making this up for? This is, no, 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 this is a real story by the Grimm brothers. All right, and uh, last but not least, Sarah Phillips has an incredible story about hitchhiking to the west coast and personally this is something i've always wanted to do but 
It's always been, you know, flagging down a car in in the middle of like a highway is just, you know, it's it's scary. Um, but Sarah has some good tips and makes a really compelling case uh, for the the Whoa, magic well, of hitchhiking. Wow, suddenly I blank. I don't I don't even know what I did. Hi, my name is Sarah Phillips. Uh, I'm a junior at Cooper Union. I'm art student. Uh, and uh, part of what I did over the summer was I, uh, a friend and I hitchhiked to Los Angeles. Um, we started out in New York City. We got, a, we got a ride from New York City down to North Carolina in one night off Craigslist. And uh, from there we just started thumbing it across I-40. <laughs> from there. That's so cool. I've always wanted to hitchhike, but obviously like every old person around me is like, you know people have died. Well, well the surprising thing is that a lot of old people have hitchhiked. Yeah, well yeah, hitchhiking it, used to be a really big thing. It, it used to be such a cultural norm and then due to a lot of fear mongering and uh, like, like uh, news reports that are, are way uh, oh my god. <laughs> words overblown 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 like like way overblowing the the danger factor of hitchhiking and i think a large a large part of it is that hitchhiking is free it's like you're relying on strangers and kindness in order to get from place to place and people find that threatening and scary but i think that's large part false people are really kind and good <laughs> uh, we ha- we had a total of about 21 rides um, we started off from just getting local rides from town to town across North Carolina. It actually took us about a day to get from the, the part we started in North Carolina to, the, to Asheville, which is about on the, the west end. Um, but then after that day, we figured out how to use truck stops. And like once we started getting rides from truckers, we just got you know 300 600 miles at a time and uh that was pretty incredible (laughs) i realized that Asheville, north carolina is a really cool incredible place uh it's totally not the place i expected it to be it's it's like a it's like a hippie enclave somewhere in somewhere in the mountains Way, way cool. Oh, oh! While we were um, hitchhiking, we um, we did a little bit of couch surfing. Uh, there was a guy in Oklahoma City that we met up with. He lives in a like a storage container outfitted as a mini house. So it was it was literally a storage container, but it had it had air conditioning and heating and plumbing and everything. It was super super cool. There were like three rooms in the whole house. I could touch one wall with my hand and the opposite wall with my foot. It was so small, but it was super, super cool. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah, we uh, we slept at a friend's, Sage Hopkins's father's house in Asheville. Yeah, yeah. And we slept at my house, and we slept in a few trucks, which might have been a bad idea, but we did it, um, and it was done. But how long did the journey take from beginning to 
six days. We took yeah, we we took one day off in on Sunday to uh, visit Nashville because we were staying at my parents' house. But uh, yeah, yeah. Every every time else, we were pretty much just booking it on the road. <laughs> It was a magical, strange experience. It's the, the first time I've seen the West since I was like three. Like the space itself was very alien and magical. I cried when we hit California. If you don't, though